I don't think there's a lot of point in throwing mud if you're the father <laughs> and having some kind of grudge match about who's the worst person because that's often what judges get very fed up of seeing is just two parents slagging each other off and it's all he says she says stuff and it's very little about actual child arrangements. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Zach is a psychotherapist with special interest in masculinity. He practices online at zachfine.co.uk and runs a programme for separated fathers in crisis called Ceasefire Method. He blogs regularly and has a YouTube channel, which we will link to in the show notes. Zach mentors young men involved in the criminal justice system with the charity Band of Brothers. Welcome, Zach. Thank you. Good to meet you, David. And good to see you again, Naomi. Yeah, great to have you on today, Zach. So thank you for, for giving us your time. Zach, I wondered if you could, if we could start with you telling us how you came to be a psychotherapist. It, it's not been your only career, has it? No, um, I was, a, I was a sub editor in newspapers uh, through my twenties, and um, really, I I was following my daughter around. So I I had a daughter when I was twenty five, and I I wasn't with her mother. Um, and, um, but I, I, I was in, I was involved in her life. Um, I moved to London to, to live around the corner and, uh, I became, yeah, really involved and really enjoyed be, being a dad. Um, but then, um, she moved, uh, my daughter's mother moved up to Liverpool, uh, and, um, I was left in this position of doing a lot of traveling and it became unsustainable. So I, I left London and I moved up north to live in Yorkshire to, to work in PR, which I didn't enjoy at all <laughs> and I wasn't very good at. And um, I, I became depressed and overwhelmed and that was really the start of how I got to be where I am now. I didn't have any insight into my well-being or mental health at all. And my GP told me um, I was clinically depressed and I needed to, yeah, get some therapy, go on antidepressants, do more exercise. And, I, and then, yeah, I, I, from that point on, I became interested in um, basically what I had gone through. I, I started to know... I began um, uh, volunteering at the Samaritans and yeah, slowly I came to the realization that I wanted to do it for work because it was much more meaningful than any work I had done, especially, especially PR. <laughs> PR was, was almost the, yeah, the antithesis to meaningful work to me at that point. So it was definitely part of my, uh, breakdown and it was a necessary breakdown I think 
was um, interesting to yeah. to hear you scoff, scoff a little bit about the PR and journalism, but actually, you know, thinking about thinking psychologically, there is something about how we communicate um, psychological ideas and principles and how we talk about mental health. And it seems to me from mm. looking at your website that actually your background in, in communications has probably served you in good stead for finding ways to reach out and connect with people that are trying to, to look for help online. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. And um, yeah, communications is important. I, I think what was, I think Jordan Peterson's mentioned this um, somewhere, that when we um, spend our time doing something that we don't believe in, it actually chips away at our soul. And I had that experience, <laughs> I had that experience when I was working in that, during that time in my life, working on communicating things that I didn't really feel aligned with. And um, it's, it's a really nice feeling now to be able to come on a podcast or write an article or whatever and and to know that I'm actually just speaking what feels true for me in this moment. It might change. I might change my opinion tomorrow, but um, it feels very different. So, Zach, you've ended up specialising in supporting men who are estranged from their children. And although you um, spoke about kind of having a relationship with your daughter and moving around, I wondered, do you have any experience of being estranged from children or was that experience of dislocation um, so powerful that that was able to connect with, with that theme? Yeah, yes, well, both. I, I went on to have a family and I can see now many aspects of how I was showing up in the relationship were were just um, unsatisfactory. <laughs> I wasn't very mature and I didn't bring um, the right qualities. But um, but on the other hand, the, the experience of dislocation with my first child was, was a major stressor on my relationship with, with the mother of my second child. So I was going off every second weekend you know, driving up from Cornwall to Liverpool, um, and then and then I cut it down a bit. But it was still a lot of energy and a lot of travel and a lot of dislocation. And and I realise now, or more and more, um, as I've been working through all of this stuff, my pattern that I that was kind of necessary for me at the time, but my pattern of um, disconnecting because it was too painful to feel the grief when I would leave my daughter so I would put armor up and and get back and just come back into another working week and I wasn't really able to move between back into lover energy this is we'll talk about this later this is part of the king warrior magician lover way of understanding elements of myself that I found useful so I would spend a lot of time in warrior you know I'm just going to drive for 15 hours round trip uh, to go, you know, to go and drop my daughter back, and then I'm gonna just do, you know, work. And it was, it was very warrior. It was not conducive to a healthy relationship with my partner. And so, uh, so I did. Unfortunately, that that family uh, separated, and um, my son, my my ex partner, went 
to, to live far away again. So I've kind of repeated it twice. This is a script for my own family. My, my mum brought me 400 miles away from my dad because we were in Yorkshire when they divorced. And so I've, I've repeated it twice now. And the second time, it got a lot more contentious and, and there was more difficulty around establishing a regular pattern. It's fine now, but it was really scary um, for a while and very stressful. Yeah. And you say it felt felt scary. I mean, I also heard you talk about the kind of like the grief of the pain, the pain of the separation. But you also say it felt scary. Can you say a bit more about about that? You know, how does it affect fathers to be estranged from their children? Uh, there's there can be a sense of powerlessness, a sense of um, just losing control um, and at times it's not clear if that relationship is if it's going to continue because there's there's no one there saying don't worry um, this will be fine in fact most of the messaging I, I got was um, you don't have any control. You know, I went to see a, a early on. I went to see a solicitor, family lawyer, and and she gave me good advice. But the the good advice was literally, you you're in trouble. You know, you you don't have any rights, and you're best off just trying to. Yeah, don't don't kick up too much of a stink because if if you end up going to family court, you probably won't get. A fair outcome and I mean that's the consistent message everywhere so there's there's it's really scary because I suddenly many men not just me but I men that I've worked with suddenly realize that there's no it's an extraordinary thing to realize but there's no you don't have any protection in law to have a relationship with your own child someone can prevent you from seeing your own child and if you react you might be seen as um, dangerous, abusive, uh, you might be told that you're um, uh, harass yeah, it's harassing if, if you keep sending too many messages or you can't, there's, it's very, it's a little bit like going through a portal into a, yeah, another world which brings with it all sorts of other tra traumatic experiences because it's very difficult for other people to relate to what you're saying if they don't have experience of it. So that's actually been a really important discovery for me is, as you, you both will know, the power of group therapy when people have shared experiences of the same type of experience. Um, I've seen that really support men in this situation. Yeah, it must be really awful because I, I remember, you know, earlier on in life thinking when fathers were estranged from the their child, making assumptions that there was some backstory to that that would explain it away. But it's only been later on in life when I've met people who I know were really committed, loving fathers and, fa and found themselves in similar situations that you see how loaded the situation is and how how it isn't a fair situation quite often. Hmm. Yeah. Just yeah, it's very easy to... Oh, sorry, go on. No, go on. I, I, I think we, 
yeah I think it's easy to to make assumptions because I think I probably did this as well you know I, this idea of deadbeat dads who just can't be bothered but I'm coming more to this realization that it actually it takes a lot to give up on your child and sometimes it is the right move if the other party is is just being behaving in a way that that is ultimately going to harm your child if you carry on trying to push it i've seen some dads come to that realization and it's an incredibly self-sacrificing one i'm not sure yeah i i kind of admire it but um I don't think any parent comes to that decision lightly unless they are heavily um, numbing, numbing out. So they might be just blocking it all out uh, somehow, maybe with drugs and alcohol or maybe just with a kind of splitting because it's so painful. It's, it's this, I think this is one of the, the most extraordinary one of the most painful things a human being or a mammal can go through, I mean, it's well documented, is, is the pain of ruptured attachment with your own child. And there's no closure, so there's no way of actually really grieving it because there's, there's a sense of someone else is doing this to me. There's, my child is otherwise alive and well, but there's, there are these forces, including maybe my ex-partner, uh, acting in a malevolent way so there's a bit of malevolence in there maybe from the point of view of the estranged parent and there's this sense of the harder I try maybe the worse it gets because yeah there's there's always more allegations or there's always more stories about why the yeah the parent isn't allowed to see the child so I don't know where to put that I just know it's an ex extremely corrosive difficult thing to metabolize and yeah I'm I'm still often really str struggle with with how with how to sort of theorize all of this stuff really um, yeah yeah I think as you were talking about you know the that being one of the most painful things that a mammal can experience and I was thinking actually if we think about women I think people find it very easy to identify how painful that is to have the separation between a mother and their child and wondering mm. why is it you know that we have this problem in showing the same kind of empathy for fathers and wondered whether it conflicts with societal expectations of fathers uh, there's loads in this i i really like martin seeger and um john barry's uh model of the Gamma bias. Are you familiar with gamma bias theory? Uh, so it's it's this I'll idea this that yeah. okay, yeah. So it's this idea that um, there isn't there isn't a great conspiracy afoot. I mean, yeah, okay. There's been third and fourth wave radical feminism that have affected the the public discourse, but actually, the there's an empathy gap. It's been well documented in different ways. But there's a there's a difference in how we look at women and how we look at men, and that's that's from the perspective of of men looking at men, and as well as women looking at men. And so there's this idea that um, because men on the whole have tended to be the ones that 
protect the perimeter of the village and they go out hunting and they go out in uh, combat to protect their communities. Um, in order to do that, men have to develop uh, the capacity to detach from emotions and detach from self-empathy. And so we then start to, that, that over time, that becomes just a kind of a, 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 a feeling, a, a normal feeling. Uh, just I can connect, I can disconnect with how I feel about myself and I can disconnect with the feelings of other men. And it, and it comes through in all sorts of ways, but it's this idea that um, when harm, harm happens to a man, we don't really see it. When harm happens to a woman, we, we're more likely to see it. And then, um, yeah, when, when a man receives privileges, we're more likely to see his maleness attached to the privilege. But when a woman sees a, uh, receives a privilege, we don't see her femaleness uh, so much. So females have privileges around reproduction. You know, they, in this country at least, they can choose whether or not to have the baby there's nothing a mat the father can do. If he wants the baby and the woman decides not to have the baby, she can have a termination. Um, and if they have the baby and the man ha is lucky enough to get on the uh, birth certificate, um, the woman can break up with him and, and decide not to let him see the child. And there's not a lot he can do about that. He can go to family court, but the average case till final hearing is, I think, 46 weeks as of first quarter in 2022 and it's it's not that uncommon for the judge to prevent contact while the case is going on so there can be this massive gap in contact and then that is often used as a precedent to say well the child isn't used to seeing the father now so we have to have less you know you can only see the child for two hours on you know every second week or something like that. And if there's false allegations of, of um, domestic abuse, which I think William Collins has said, based on the ONS data of prevalence of domestic abuse, around about 60% of domestic abuse allegations in private family law must be false because there just isn't enough um, actual domestic abuse to fit the, the volume that's being said is, is really happening. Um, but whatever that is, obviously it still happens, but it's just this idea that there's, um, it comes back, I do think it comes back to gamma bias often. It's just a lot easier to overlook the suffering of the fathers, uh, than it is to mothers. And it's not supposed to be about fathers this is supposed to be about the welfare of children which is another huge uh place a topic that i think uh, our family court system as it is just hasn't somehow hasn't got any attachment theory built into it so i don't think the people administering this the system the judges and the kafkas caseworkers actually realize that when you stop a child seeing a primary carer you are actually commissioning actual harm to the child that might have lifelong effects if it isn't addressed. It's repairable, but um, it will affect them developmentally. If they're young, you're, you're actually 
you're ordering developmental trauma to happen. And then if it's not handled well on the other side of that, which it's going to be difficult considering the father's basically just been uh, put in that situation. So he might have lost his job by, because he's focusing on the court case. He might have gone into debt. Many of these guys spend 70000 100000 They get rinsed by family lawyers and barristers. And I think there's, I mean, I could say a lot about their practices that, but this is part of the systemic problem of an adversarial system. It doesn't look, it doesn't treat this as a family issue. It treats it, uh, it treats it as a um, uh, a dispute. So it's always looking for who's right and who's wrong, rather than okay. There's a family system in pain, and how do we look after the children here? The children really do come last, in, in as far as I can see. I think human relationships are extremely complex, aren't they? Mm. And court systems often seem only able to deal in headlines, and of course mm. headlines become weaponized by various sides. Mm. It's painful, really. I mean, what you're describing reminds me so much of... I used to do lots of one-to-one -one work in GP practices going back 30 years or so, and I can mm. remember still quite clearly some of the men that I saw who were separated by from their families, and the, you know, the absolute weight of their despair and uh, depression. Uh, it was painful, so painful I can remember it uh, still. Yeah, there's... There's a quote, actually, I'd like to read out about this because it's um, and it, it speaks to that in terms of male shame. So we can. In the masculine archetypes that Martin Seeger describes, so not King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, but more more the kind of really universal ones. So um, mastery of emotion, fighting and winning, so competing and winning. Uh, and providing and protecting. So these are the, these are showing up in, in fathers more or less, uh, to more or less degree. And yeah, as you say, if, if you meet a father who's one way or the other lost contact with his family against his wishes, there is, there's this very loaded sense of shame because he hasn't often, because he hasn't been able to figure out a way to actually still be in the child's life. And there's, there's a huge, um, yeah, there's, a, there's pain deriving from that social loss. And, and, and there's this quote from um, uh, Panksepp. So this guy did a lot of, I think, neurological research. You might be familiar with him. But he just says, this is from 1981, when social bonds are severed, all mammals experience emotional distress that has the effective quality of pain. In fact, one of the most difficult forms of pain that humans, as well as other mammals, can experience is that arising from social loss. And I think if we're talking about, you know, the loss of your access to your children, you know, it's, you, there's so much that comes with that. You know, I just spent yesterday in a family event with loads of my nieces and nephews. There was a time when I would have found that really difficult because of the social loss that I've experienced. 
uh, and I'm not saying I'm not responsible for <laughs> creating uh, broken, separated families. I, I completely am. I'm 100% responsible for my behaviour. But I still used to feel that, that pain in my system. And that would affect my ability to be a father and my ability to support my children's mothers financially and in other ways, you know, and to communicate and not be stuck in rage and anger and things like that. Okay, so you've touched upon this already, Zach, but what advice would you give to fathers who are estranged? I suppose it depends, first of all, on uh, what's going on specifically. So what's the context of it? Is it, uh, have you, you know, how long has it been since you saw your child? How old is your child? And what's the relationship like with the child's mother, between you and the child's mother? So if... Um, Because these are very dynamic situations. You know, I've got a friend who um, I was speaking to the other day. He's got an, uh, an eight-year-old daughter. He's got, he's got a couple of kids with a new partner. Um, and he's got an eight-year-old daughter who lives with, with her mum quite far away. You know, like three hours drive away. And, and that relationship with his daughter has been more or less okay. She's, she's visited him, uh, she's enjoyed that. Uh, and, um, but just recently, this year, um, the mother has started saying she doesn't want to come and visit and she feels anxious about visiting. And so he's taken that on good faith, which I think is a pretty, it sounds like a, you know, quite a good idea on the face of it. Sort of, okay, I'll trust what she's saying. Um, but it's starting to get to the point where we're not sure, you know, he's not sure. Is this actually, what's this actually about? And unfortunately, often it is about, sometimes about this Oedipal mother, this dark feminine quality of um, wanting to control the supply of love from the child. And maybe we don't I don't know this, but it was coming up in the conversation. Maybe his ex partner was triggered by um a uh a photo album that that him and his partner sent his daughter for her birthday because it showed all these lovely memories with with him in his family, and everything seemed to change after that, and we he just suddenly realized he put his finger on, oh God, that was when it changed. So what do you do in that situation? So um, I, w I really wouldn't advise anyone to go to family court, but sometimes if you can't get any, you know, if, you, if, if, if the other parent isn't responding to you, is just ignoring you, or is just not cooperating on any level, then maybe it's worth looking at. And there's ways of doing it that can be affordable and much less likely to create unnecessary conflict. So I, um, 
I don't think there's a lot of point in throwing mud if you're the father <laughs> and having some kind of grudge match about who's the worst person because that's often what judges get very fed up of seeing is just two parents slagging each other off and it's all he says she says stuff and it's very little about actual child arrangements so if you can just turn up ideally represent yourself get a Mackenzie friend if 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 you need more support and a Mackenzie friend is someone who isn't professionally qualified as a lawyer but they have they know their way around the system and often they'll be they'll have a a kind of advocacy approach because they may have experienced it many of these guys are also separated fathers who then become Mackenzie friends because they've learned how to do it and families need fathers is a is an amazing charity where you can get contacts like this so i'd i'd, I'd say I'd always say check out Families Need Fathers. There'll probably be a local group near you. Otherwise, you can get on a WhatsApp group and get practical advice. But yeah, try and represent yourself. Um, don't throw any mud. Don't slag off your child's mother. Just keep saying the same thing. I want to have a, a predictable and... Uh, regular contact with my child because that's in the, their interest. They need that regular predictable attachment bond to develop. You can use a little bit of um, trauma and development. You could use ACEs, which is uh, adverse childhood experiences. There's loads of research to show that uh, child outcomes suffer um, as a result of fatherlessness or motherlessness. It doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, do that. Talk to families need fathers, and if you can get get yourself to a, a men's group. So you, you there, there's all sorts of different men's groups around, depending on where you live. There's a band of brothers, which is all over the all over England. There's uh, Mankind Project. They they do online men's circles free of charge. Um, check them out. Uh, they're really good. And then there's other groups, just local groups. Um, but a place for you to be able to share how you're feeling with other men would be good. And you can, if you can afford it, get some one-to-one -one, um, therapy or coaching. Because um, my experience is it's, and yeah, from seeing many other men and from my own experience, it's easy to stay embittered and very negative and you can, I can't, you can kind of go to this almost Cain energy of hating, resenting life, resenting God, resenting the universe, and actually feeling aggravated when, when you see people, happy families. You don't want to go to that place. You could, you could spend your whole life in that. And what you really need is to, to grieve the loss of the family unit and the loss, maybe the loss of contact. Um, even if you still see your child, it can still be a massive loss. You know, when I, even now, when I come back from seeing my son, I usually have a couple of days of really wobbly. I can allow myself to feel it now, but it doesn't mean it's easy, but it's, it's a wrench. It's difficult. Yeah. Well, there's loads of really good points you've made there. I think uh, I'll try and extract them into uh, bullet points for the uh, 
show notes uh, later on. And can you just remind me mm. what Band of Brothers does? We've mentioned it twice so far. Yeah, it's a great um, it's a great charity. It's all over England. I think there's thirteen communities, and we work with young men involved in the criminal justice system. So it might they might be coming out of jail or uh, at risk of going into jail um, from the ages of eighteen to twenty-five. And so these are young young men who are lost, and and also they could, they might not have criminal justice issues. They might have just had addiction issues or um, suffered in some way, um, been homeless maybe, and um, they they are desperately in need of male mentoring. They need older men to model how to put your life together, how to take personal responsibility, how to understand the different elements of your psyche as a man and uh, move towards more order and stability in, in your life. So the way, one of the ways um, we do that is through a rites of passage uh, structure so a weekend doing that and then they go into a, a, an ongoing mentoring relationship with another older man and then once they're through all of that they're considered to be initiated and they can join our circle as initiated older men and if they want they can train to become mentors themselves um, and they can train to become facilitators in, in the in the work and many of those younger men kind of drift away and then come back later um, but there's older men like me who get a lot from the process as well so I, I feel very nourished by my weekly circle with a band of brothers and yeah I, I mentor men and but I get a lot from it as well it's it's this sense of having a, a circle to share in is in a structured way that I I see so beneficial and to realize what just what many men are going through is really not really tough um, men from all all backgrounds you know I think there's a wider question here around masculinity how what's our relationship culturally with masculinity well I think there's a problem with that there's been a question mark around that since the late late in the last century there's an identity crisis among men and it needs addressing and I think a band of brothers is doing a fa fantastic job at, at doing that I can't go into the exact ways that they do it because it's not it's it's held in secret so it, to make the process more powerful for new men but but it's great I, I love it yeah That's great. And in fact, we've got a conversation lined up with James Wong of Band of Brothers um, in a few weeks time. So, you know, we'll have a whole episode devoted to that. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, he's great. So, yeah. But you also run a programme called The Ceasefire Method, 
So can you tell us a bit about that and, and why it's useful? So I came up with it um, as, as a way of trying to put my experiences to, to create some structure around them and, and create a kind of therapeutic pathway for, for other men in crisis if they're in family court or uh or they may be about to go start family court or they yeah in one case a man who had, had been to family court and then kind of given up um but yeah it's uh sorry what did you ask me to, do you want me to explain what's what how the ceasefire method yeah. is what's involved in it a little bit yeah yeah so it's a three-month group therapy uh structure online so it's it's all on zoom and i see the men once a week in the group for a couple of hours and i kind of take them through this it's teaching some concepts and ideas to help them I guess, normalize their situation and understand it from different perspectives. So, um, so there's some ideas in there that maybe like the ones we've already talked about today, like there's, there's, there's this idea that, um, we, we're kind of living in a matriarchal society, a matrifocal society. I know we hear a lot that we're living in a patriarchy, <laughs> But I think the reality is is otherwise, and there's been a war on the father archetype for a while, you know, maybe forty or fifty years, and um, it's considered kind of normal to for par for children to grow up without their dads around. Um, so I, yeah, there's ele elements like that, that kind of theme that I start to go through to give the men a sense of. Um, we're, uh, the, obviously this is very personal and each case is very specific but, but we're also all part of this huge forces that are affecting everyone and families have been breaking down more and more marriages have been breaking down children aren't doing very well and um, you know the this is a can be quite a good way of of coming at the shame kind of side on because okay maybe i do feel shame that i'm not in my child's life enough but if i can understand the context and the wider forces uh if i feel shame that i haven't got the right results from the family court uh battle again i it's it's maybe it takes the edge off the shame if i understand the the ideology at play in for example kafkas like the way kafkas operates is very ideological and and so is um uh domestic violence perpetrator programs they're based on the duluth model which is the power and control model of men and ellen pence the person who developed that system said herself that you know she's very rarely actually come across that conceptual man most of the time domestic abuse is much more complicated it's bi-directional 
and so so there's a bit around that and then there's there's a bit around um well, there's quite a lot in it but a couple of salient themes are understanding the difference between rage and anger and understanding uh our own early life and our inner child so connecting with the vulnerability of of uh our inner children and trying to understand the the relation relationship patterns that maybe were there before the men met the mother of their children so getting a sense of what did they bring into that relationship and what is what are they accountable for what are they responsible for and also what was their ex bringing into the relationship maybe there was uh unprocessed trauma from earlier life events uh so understanding rage as something that isn't just extreme anger but it's actually a uh, in in the uh approach of my colleague and friend Sue Parker Hall I like her idea of understanding rage which is it's a distinct um uh defense mechanism from a very early developmental stage um early in terms of the life cycle but also early in terms of evolution you know it's it's the organism crying for help through making a stink i either destroying stuff or f- it's freezing and shutting down so sometimes the men can really get a lot from understanding the behavior of their ex through the prism of maybe their ex is just overwhelmed and feeling rage and she's shut down that's why she's not responding so it's an empathic understanding it's an empathic approach to understanding the relationship why it's got to that stage and then we do bits of um transactional analysis to understand that and we do bits of um or we get towards the end we start looking at non-violent communication so just taking responsibility for what you can do everything you do has like an energetic resonance so if you <laughs> even if you write a message it took me a while to get my head around this but even if you write a message to your ex that seems to be polite if you're seething as you're writing it it's it's she'll feel that so there's a real piece of discipline and and the group's great for this is is holding each other accountable so they i get them all to write their vision down about where they want to be what they want for themselves their children and their ex in one year and 5 years and maybe further into the future even if they don't get the outcome they want from the family court uh uh fight which is a hard one for them to swallow but that's it's about taking extreme ownership over everything that they can control so they obviously can't control how their ex feels and thinks but they can start interacting with the good part of her because there is a good part in everyone doesn't matter how um insane her behavior might appear she's not insane you know there's a there's some kind of reason why she's doing everything so yeah maybe she's doing it from a place of overwhelm and rage um but whatever it is the f- um you can start and consistently interact respectfully 
with the good part of her and and that over time will actually develop some trust hopefully it you may get nothing back but the point is actually to get to a point where in say five years you can know categorically that you've done everything impeccably in the best interests of your child and you're not responsible for any harm that comes to your child beyond that and it's pretty hard to to be impeccable in these situations so you you know it's a very high mark to be aiming at so even if you can get only get like half or three quarters of the way to being impeccable you're doing a pretty good job i think so yeah so there's um there's this idea of becoming uh the best father that you the best father that you can be in the most extremely the most extreme challenging circumstances so can you actually be a masculine container for your child and your child's mother even while the child's mother is hostile um that's that's kind of the the gauntlet the challenge that we're setting ourselves on the course and and the men hold each other accountable to that and because it's really easy to slip and one of the main um i broke it down to really simple kind of three steps really so step one is if you're in any kind of conflict whatever it is just disengage just disengage for right now and come out of it and then the second step is to do with polyvagal theory so it's about finding safety embodied safety yourself so before you do anything else before you make any more decisions you have to practice uh, giving yourself safety cues so that could be jumping in the sea for me or going surfing or going walking definitely getting a handle on your sleep pattern uh, maybe having hot baths with mineral salts and a candle getting your diet a bit better drinking less caffeine hydrating more all this we know all this stuff it's not rocket science but people just don't want to do that they want to moan about you know the court case and it's just like no like we'll get to that but that's not actually the thing the thing is to get your system settled and then once they can do that once they can come up to this social engagement state from the you know the ventral vagal system we can make decisions and we can make communication with our ex-partners from that space only from that space not from the sympathetic nervous system or the dorsal vagal system which is like the freeze but only from the safety the embodied safety because that's the energetic resonance that i was talking about the other person will actually be able to feel that you feel safe and that you're trying you're building you're willing to build bridges from that from that embodied root like safe rootedness and safety and so that's really it to break it all down ceasefire if nothing else is just about that it's about bringing self-discipline and boundaries to how you make decisions and how you communicate with your ex and then um doing your honorable best and and not beating yourself up because you can't control the other side 
this is the only, this is the only stuff you can control. So yeah, I think that probably captures captures most Thank of Thank you, the, Zach. That's a brilliant answer. There's a, a lot of uh, meat in that answer, I think. So, mm. what do you think? And again, you've touched upon this to some extent. What are the implications for the health and well-being of a child who doesn't have regular contact with their father? Uh, I think self-confidence has come up a lot in the research. So if you are a child growing up with a single, with your dad instead of your mum, you tend to be more self-confident and suffer less anxiety. So that's, that's borne out um, in various bits of research I've seen. I think I saw that, that's from this book actually, where I got that from, The Boy Crisis by Warren Farrell and John Gray. John Gray. There's loads of good stats in here about um, the effects of fatherlessness, but stuff like uh, inappropriate sexual activity, um, ADHD, um, drugs, risky behaviour. I mean, boys are a nightmare anyway for risky behaviour. Young, you know, adolescent boys. If you take their dads out of the equation, they're they're, they're way worse. And they've got these massive testosterone spikes, you know, around 14 and then up to 25. And it's just, it's a bit of a toxic cocktail if you don't have your dad around or uh, a, ma a decent male mentor. Um, what else? Yeah, unemployment, more chance of going to jail. I think most, you'll probably know more about this than me, but I think most um, inmates, well, definitely most inmates of prisons are male. And of those, most of them were in care or single mother, fa single parent families mostly single mum families. Um, so it affects your life chances in terms of social mobility, relationships, you're less, if, if you've, you'll find it harder to um, establish relationships because you don't get the triangulation. So young children benefit from seeing their mother and their father or both, whoever their parents are, but they, they have, they both have different qualities. And so the child's able to understand that there's a different reality, there's different aspects of reality that are kind of embodied by this, by the masculine and the feminine. So they, it's called triangulation. I think I'm explaining this correctly. And that, that's very important for the healthy development of the child from a young age. And the child gets to see um, conflict resolution modeled by the parents. Assuming they <laughs> they actually do, you know, resolve things. Um, so without that blueprint of how to do it, I mean, I don't really know how to do it. I I grew up with my my mum and two older sisters, and my dad. I do actually have it modelled by my dad. He's in, he's in a beautiful marriage with my stepmom. They've been married for over twenty five years, I think, and that's. That's a great um, example to me and my other siblings. Um, but most of the time I was with my mum and I, so I didn't get, yeah. And, and, and it's quite easy to see the effects of that. So there's seven, there's seven siblings. I'm one of seven and this is a mixed family. 
And the two people who were around, my mum and my stepdad, the most, are my younger brother, who's uh, the child of my dad and my stepmom, and my stepmom's youngest daughter. So they were the ones that kind of grew up mostly with my dad and my stepmom. They're both married and have two kids each. Everyone else has had kids and split up. Because we, we didn't get to see as much of it. I think it's, a, it's a, the idea of the family script. You just you kind of regurgitate what, what you've seen modelled. Mm. Great. I can't remember what your question was again. but <laughs> No, no, you've, you've answered the question. Yeah, fine. Because, yeah, of course, okay, it's a great. sort of a question without any ends or sides, really. Um, so, but you've given us yeah. A, yeah. Uh, a good perspective there. I'm just thinking that, that uh, obviously some fathers choose not to be involved. And so what would you think in terms of your lesbian relationships, do you think a father substitute can compensate in any way at all? Yeah, I, I don't see why a woman can't step into the father role. Um, that it's just about polarity, isn't it? So if I, d I don't know loads about this, but I would imagine that in many lesbian relationships, there's a masculine and a feminine person, uh, more you know, more masculine and more feminine. So why can't that person then gra gravitate to the classic father roles, which is basically boundary enforcement, um, discipline? tough love, risk-taking, so pushing your child to take risks and adventure, uh, which is often isn't really understood or condoned by the mother. It's rough housing, so like rough play wrestling. The boys especially need that because they need to be able to down-regulate their, their um, limbic system. You know, they need to be able to um, not lose it. They need to be able to take provocation and learn self-mastery to down-regulate their, their anger and um, so why can't a, a lesbian woman take that role? I think they probably can. And I'm sure they're already doing it. Um, yeah. Um, is it is it right for a child to grow up? I mean, this this is probably a very controversial topic, but I do think about it because I know people. I know personally have friends who have had arti been, been artificially inseminated uh, to have a child, knowing full well that the child wasn't going to have a father figure at all because they didn't have a relationship with anyone, but they just wanted to have a child. So I'm not sure how I feel about that. I must admit, I find that quite challenging. <laughs> but but I, I can also empathise with these women who I'm, yeah, I like. Yeah, they're my friends, and um, I it think is complicated. it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, I think but what I, you're saying, yeah. though, is that you see it as being related to characteristics and the relationships which arise from that. Yes, yes, and and actually, I just think it's so hard being a single parent. It's hard enough being a single parent when, when there's another parent involved 
regularly like like I am. But if you're a single parent and there isn't even any other parent from day one, it's, you're, you're starting with a huge handicap and the child is starting with a massive handicap. So it's not great, I don't think. For It doesn't mean it's not... It, you, there's always ways around this. You know, if you've got a supportive, wider family and friendship network, then okay. But um, it's just very, very hard raising kids, I think we... <laughs> We'd all agree. It's a lot harder than it's we think it's going to be. Dead right there. <laughs> so uh, I think yeah. that will get wide acceptance from the people who listen to this podcast. <laughs> so yeah. you use you talk a lot in terms of archetypes, um, and uh, so can you tell us a bit about archetypes and and, and why you think they're so useful? Yeah, so it's really just from my own personal experience on this strange journey of whatever I'm doing. Uh, th this idea of masculine archetypes uh, and the king, warrior, magician, lover archetypes just resonated so much with me. And it, was, it felt like the first time since I was an adolescent, I'd, I'd been longing for this kind of what I would what I would have thought of as how it would have been in the old days, you know, the pre-agricultural -agri days, um, where you would have, if you were a male, you would have been taken off by the older men in the tribe and sorted out shown what's what and given a clear idea of what it actually what all these forces and impulses and instincts going on inside me were all about because i had like i said i grew up in <laughs> with with my mum and my two older sisters and then on the school holidays i would go to see my dad but often he would be busy at work and i'd be lumped in with three older stepsisters and my stepmom and i'd just be like <laughs> what's going on and and i don't think and like i again i'm not complaining at all it's i had a fantastic childhood but i didn't feel like anyone at any point through my whole schooling career or university or anything really ever really communicated that they they knew what what being a man was all about and they could actually recognize the forces going on inside me. My dad gave me amazing support around and healthy challenge around, come on, you've got to get your driving license. Come on, you've got to get a job. Come on, you've got to decide what career you're going to do. So he kind of like kicked me up the ass a lot and uh, gave me practical support. And then in late, no, as an adult, he gave me advice and support around business and money and finance and parenting and stuff but what I was really longing for was was some wisdom around like what it actually meant to be a man and and it was very shallow I never really sort of found anything and then one day I came across this book called um the the warrior within this so this is the I know you're not recording the um the visual of this but 
this this book King Warrior Magician Lover by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette is is their book that kind of touches on all these four archetypal energies but the first time I came across any of this was their book on the warrior and I it was one of those moments I don't know if you ever had this when you I I saw the book and I in a little library where I was doing a men's group and I just like glanced at the back of it and I instantly realized that oh this I think this is going to be really important I took it home and I just read it in one night I think and it was all it just rang true everything that I was reading rang true because it was describing this inner experience that I had had since adolescence without um judgment and I I think what I had been accruing since adolescence was a sense of resentment that no one it felt like no one really understood what it felt like to have loads of testosterone and loads of and just like no way of um yeah, there was there was kind of no guidance on how to channel it. It felt like it. I just felt very out of control and and not not very clear on what these forces were. So then, as I started to dig into the the King Warrior Magician Lover stuff, it it's a beautiful theory that articulates these different energies in the masculine psyche and their functions and their potential to if 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 we come into re- right relationship with them uh there's this amazing potential to step away from the tendency to identify with them because the the idea is they're universal forces these these exist in the universe anyway and they come through us and they man- they manifest through us in our behaviors but if we can't um understand and channel them then they can they can become malignant so and and i instantly <laughs> instantly realized that oh shit that's that's what's been happening for me a lot in my life and um so i was instantly fascinated with it and then i did i yeah i've just got more more involved in a practical sense with it so i did a training with a guy um, a Norwegian guy called Ivan Schellum, who has he's been studying this stuff at a very deep level, and he created a three-month initiation program for for men, which was a really deep dive into it, uh, which was very challenging but really, really, really good. And um, yeah, I've found that it resonates with with many of my clients as well. Um, because these are they're very powerful energies so I don't know if you want me to go into it a little bit and ex- explain the top line on each one or yeah that, that would be great how it, yeah, how yeah. It if you can, can do that help people. briefly okay yeah sure so um, so I'll start with with the warrior and the lover so um, many men uh, including me and many other men that I know get kind of stuck in warrior energy and th- this is this is a, a sort of narrow bandwidth of not really it's like kind of gray you're not really aware of how you feel 
you're just um, getting stuff done. So you're kind of grinding through your work. You, maybe you've got a family, you've got financial responsibilities or responsibilities and, and you just keep, pump, you keep pumping and, and doing that stuff. And you may become very detached and just not really sure how you feel, but it doesn't seem relevant because you just need to carry on doing what you're, gonna, what you're responsible for doing. So it's difficult. <laughs> it's not a very good one if, if you're in a relationship and you're stuck in your warrior. But nevertheless, the warrior, in, a, in, in his healthy warrior, a man is, um, he's, uh, he's able to get stuff done. He's able to say no. So he's good, he's good with boundaries. And um, he, yeah, he's able to bring structure and discipline and um, hold himself accountable. If he's got too much warrior energy, a man um, or anyone, doesn't have to be a man, but we could uh, become uh, sadistic, cruel, just just nasty. Um, yeah, maybe a bully, throwing our weight around and just causing harm because we can. And then if we're deficient in warrior energy, we can become... Um, masochistic so we, we can say I, I it's all too much I can't do anything uh, I can't get anything done um, and yeah we become masochistic and then so that the, let's say the warriors over here uh, and there's an axis there's a line the lover is is on the other end of that axis which is this is the polarity of uh, warrior and lover so what lover energy is um, it's kind of where we begin in life, you know, the child who doesn't have any introjected values. It's, it's, it just cries when it's hungry and cold. It hasn't adapted itself to the ways of the world yet, so it's just about feeling. And as we get older, this becomes about food, music, dance, sensuality, sex, colour, art, all, all everything that's about pleasure and being... Uh, indulgent and in, in the present moment um, and some men can find it hard to access this place and, and, and need to work, do some work around it and the idea is as we do more and more work on, on understanding all of this we, we can move between warrior and lover you know from moment to moment whenever we need to so we've just become more flexible and, and responsive the gateway emotion to lover energy is grief so the extent to which we can feel sadness is the extent to which we can inhabit our lover and the gateway emotion to warrior is anger and again anger is is a very life force energy so we really need anger and we really need grief and then we go to um, the king and <laughs> the magician and if you can think of so warrior and lover are on a horizontal axis and king and lover are on a vertical axis. And the idea is the, the king's on the top of the pyramid and is, is kind of the culmination of the integration of the warrior and lover energies getting closer and closer together. And the magician is down in the darkness. And the magician is there. If you think about a kind of medieval court, the king needs to consult his magician. He always had... Uh, I think even up to quite recent times, the monarch actually had uh, 
uh, a magician. I don't know if they still do. They might do unofficially. But the idea is the magician goes down into, into the underworld, into the dark, to bring back knowledge to counsel the king with. And the gateway emotion for the magician is fear because um, he has to confront fear in order, in order to be able to go move into the underworld and um, discover new knowledge. And this is the cleverest part of us. So this, this is a very, very uh, disembodied uh, intellectual mind energy. And if we have too much of it, we can become paranoid and um, overthinking. And we can see the, the gateway emotion being fear. It's kind of a, it's about strategizing and sensing danger. And so an overinflated magician will, will over-egg it and tell the king, or actually probably push the king off his throne and try and take the throne himself and and stop the person, stop the man taking any risks because uh, he's looking out constantly for risk and, and the, within the magician there's two elements, there's the safety officer who's just looking for r risk all the time and maybe seeing it everywhere and there's the predator which is a very old dark energy which is primeval, doesn't care about the moral code in the culture and basically will do anything to survive. So, so he will um, take people down and, and he will flip and turn inwards and self-predate on the person as well through the inner critic. Just ruthless self-criticism. Doesn't want you to uh, risk failing uh, or looking stupid. So he'll, he'll, he'll hack you down before you have a chance to do that and he'll attack others and he's an incredibly useful ally to bring to repurpose and bring on side because of his really very powerful uh, killer instincts but this yeah this is the one that often we is so slippery and so in the shadows that we we, we it's quite hard to find him and quite hard to see what he's actually doing so it takes quite a lot of work to dig into him, but he's very, very um, important. Um, and then, yeah, we have the king, and his gateway emotion is joy. And a healthy king uh, is full of blessings. He just sees the good in the people around him and uh, encourages them. And he's powerful, but he sees his power as a uh, a way of service. So he's... He's kind of a custodian over his business or his family or his asset base or whatever it is you're talking about. But, but he's not jealous of his power. He's there in service to those he's protecting and providing for. And so in that, in that instance, his kingdom is flourishing and you know, there's, um, people are doing well and it's a virtuous cycle. But if he has uh, too much too much king, too much inflation, he becomes the tyrannical king. And like King Herod, you know, he, he ordered the assassination of all newborn males because he heard Jesus was going to be born. Yeah, he's paranoid, he's, he's uh, vicious. And too little king is the abdicator who just 
get scared of the responsibility when when he's you know when events call to for him to step up and he just kind of rationalizes why he can't do it to himself and slinks off so the king is really it's it's like the extent to which we can access our king is the extent to which we can make contact with the other energies and integrate them in service so the king's the one that can that has the vision and can see the big picture and and can point everything towards where he wants to go and he's not going to get bullied by the magician and he's going to keep his warrior warrior in check and give the warrior clear instructions and he can still access his grief so he's not getting stuck in this detached warrior yeah i think that's Great. it you've summed that up very nicely what, sorry Naomi, what were you going to say i was just going to say that's really interesting actually to hear that and as you it made me you know reflect back on working in the prison and how blocked many of the men were in terms of being able to access their grief um, and also to access joy um and yeah, made me want to, to read more about it. So thank you, it's a really helpful explanation. And one of the things I think that's nice about having podcast conversations with people who come from very different backgrounds and bring very different different knowledge that um, serves as a pathway to, you know, more learning and more curiosity. So, so thank you for that. Great, uh, can I just say that I, um, I've nearly finished writing an article about, about King Warrior Magician Lover. <laughs> So when it's done, I'll publish it and send it over. Maybe you can put it in the bottom of the chat as a link, just so it's this so reference material if people want to know more. That'd be brilliant. Thank you. And yeah, by the time we obviously we record a few weeks prior to publishing, so that that probably does give you a chance to to finish that before we publish anyway. Great. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking with you Zach because I think one of the things that comes across is you're very open and candid um, reflect a lot on your responsibility which so you know to me seems to be um, you know exemplifying being a good role model around how to do masculinity but I wondered what, what have you learned about yourself on your journey from estranged fatherhood to where you are now what have been the growth points for you it's, un it's been uncomfortable but I'd say seeing, seeing the ways that I've been sometimes in sadistic warrior and sometimes I've been in a paranoid magician and sometimes I've been in tyrannical king and shut down lover. Um, yeah really coming more and more it, this is a gradual process and it takes ongoing work but coming more and more into contact with the ways in which um, my behavior has impacted other people and hurt other people uh, and yeah how um, how I haven't been able to I haven't known how to be a mature man so that's an ongoing uh, piece of work. And I think this happens a lot maybe with therapists. You know, we tend to gravitate towards our own wounds and use that as the material to work with other people. So I'm, I'm just doing that and I'm, 
uh, yeah, it's it's very humbling because I can sometimes feel like I'm get, getting <laughs> make, making headway, and then a, a whole new piece of uh, self awareness will drop in about how I've been in the past and how I am now, and it's it's yeah, it's challenging. But I think that is the nature of this work. It's just stripping the ego back. I, th I think I had a really big ego uh, and probably still do, but it, I'm, I'm gradually tearing strips off it. <laughs> and, you know, we, we do, I need my ego. We need an ego to be able to process life and uh, move through life. So it's... How do I explain it? It's, yeah, I think for me it's a process of becoming more and more accepting about myself and my limitations and maybe my potential because I, it's scary uh, realising our potential sometimes. It's actually maybe one of the most terrifying things is realising how powerful we could be so yeah it's it's a it's a real uh it's a real honor to be able to do go on this journey and for it to actually be apparently beneficial for other people at the same time you know i it's magical how this has ended up happening i'm not really sure how but i'm in, i'm enjoying it yeah it's really nice to hear that and it's been great for us to benefit from um, the insights and wisdom that you've picked up. I think you've shared some really useful information for, for people during the course of this conversation. But, you know, our final question is always about, you know, with many of the people that we interview, including yourself, Zach, we're, you know, people are working with others who are experiencing significant levels of distress how do you protect your own emotional well-being and keep yourself healthy and nourished? Um, yeah, good question. Uh, I've got different practices. So uh, I journal. I noticed this weekend, for example, I had uh, I had three pints on on Friday night and then it was my cousin's birthday on Saturday, so I went out. Didn't really feel like going out, but it was, yeah, it was it was good to do. But I had six pints on Saturday. And so how, I felt, I really felt it yesterday. And then I still felt it a bit this morning. And it's just that awareness of, it's not that I get everything right, but I these days I reflect on my energy levels and my quality of sleep and, if I'm feeling anxious, I'll make some kind of level of inquiry around it and maybe journal or just, just reflect on it. And um, not so long ago, like a few years ago, I would have just not, not brought space to that process. Uh, so that's, yeah, self-reflection self and self-inquiry is a big one. And then I have um, quite a lot of uh, freedom over my own time because I'm just working privately so I can make sure I'm outside walking or doing something outside every day in the daylight 
which I find really beneficial to have daylight, you know, to have sunshine or just daylight is really big. And, um, yeah, sleep. So I, I need to get seven or eight hours sleep. I need, I need exercise and I need, like I said earlier in this conversation, I need safety cues. So maybe having baths with mineral salts, uh, I don't like bright lights. Like, it's, these are like little things that I've just realised gradually over the years that how sensitive I am. And I think I used to just block it all out and feel, just not feel very good most of the time. And I just thought that was kind of how it, I thought that was normal. But it's, it doesn't have to be normal. I think there's a lot of people who haven't, realized that you can actually feel quite good <laughs> with a little bit of tweaking yeah maybe not drinking so much caffeine and booze and maybe not I don't know it doesn't mean you have to be a, a vegan or something I mean I don't think vegans are particularly healthy anyway but it's but it's different for everyone so for me it's something around water surfing swimming and walking and then making sure I've got some because I live on my own and, and it's easy for me to forget to have social interaction because I'm a bit of a hermit. So I, I'm consciously putting, you know, and make sure I have regular stuff. And um, yeah, so there's all these different bits of, of well-being, social, uh, body stuff, intellectual stuff, emotional stuff. Oh yeah, and I also have um, a clinical supervisor which... I, I really love speaking to him. It's, it's so reassuring. And I have to do that as part of my job, uh, but I really enjoy it. And then the other bit is there's usually something going on for me in terms of new training or new experiences. So I just got back a few weeks ago from walking a pilgrim route in England called the Mary and Michael Pilgrim Way which was a really powerful experience. Just walking that on my own and wild camping, uh, that, that was extremely nourishing. And yeah, earlier this year I did a, uh, a darkness retreat for a week. So it was a week spent in pitch black darkness, um, meditating and doing breath work and things like that, which was a deep, uh, big experience. And yeah, there's usually some training going on. So I'm, at the moment, I'm looking at maybe doing some a big piece of formal training in. Um, well, there's two options, but there are two different types of psychotherapy. But yeah, I, I I just feel like it's time for me to yeah develop a bit more and find out more about different ways of working. Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Zach. Lots of lots of um, really nice insights there. Thanks so much for the conversation. Mm, my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Great uh, meeting meeting with you, Zach, and great talking with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, David.